Hello, I'm Ethan Anthony, and welcome to Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. There are few figures so ingrained in pop culture and world history like Muhammad Ali. Along with being one of the best professional heavyweight boxers in history, Ali was a civil rights and anti-war activist, a follower of the Nation of Islam, later converting to Sunni Islam, an author, and an artist. Beyond these titles, though, Muhammad Ali stands as this almost mythological figure, a symbol supported by all the literature, films, theater, and artwork that exemplifies his life and impact. It's like Muhammad Ali always said, I am the greatest. Published in 2021 by Columbia University Press, At Home and Abroad, The Politics of American Religion explores the ways religion connects with law and politics on topics ranging from religion in Hawaii to the culture of yoga. Our co-hosts are Ira Bedzo, the director of the Miriam Institute Project in International Ethics and Leadership, and Matthew Cavadon, the Robert Poole Fellow in Law and Religion. In this series, they will be talking with authors from this volume and asking not only about the text and their inspiration behind the chapter, but also its timeliness today. In our season finale, Matt and I speak with Cooper Harris of Indiana University. Harris is an associate professor in religious studies and an adjunct professor in comparative literature, folklore, and ethnomusicology. His research focuses on the relationship between religion and major cultural figures in American history, and how they define the culture then as well as today. Harris has written about Ralph Ellison, Kurt Vonnegut, Nat Turner, Zora Neale Hurston, and Muhammad Ali. In his essay, On the Abroad of a Different Home, Muhammad Ali in Microscope, Harris uses the history of the athlete as well as how his life is represented in media to explore how the selectiveness of identity can paint specific pictures of an individual. The three begin by discussing why Harris chose to write about Ali, explaining how Ali acts as a symbol for post-war American religion. The conversation then shifts into the art meant to illustrate the life of Ali, from work that highlights a certain span of time, such as all the film biopics that follow Ali between 1964 to 1974, to work that focuses on a specific moment, such as in Will Power's play, Fetch Clay, Make Man. And along with discussions of how white popular memory and black popular memory remember Ali, as well as the ways irony and double cross relate to the athlete, the three consider the question, how do we explain our identity? Or is there no such thing, only perception? All this and more on today's episode of Interactions brought to you by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. We are here today with Cooper Harris. Cooper is an associate professor of religious studies at the Indiana University's Bloomington campus. He is also an adjunct professor of folklore and ethnomusicology and an adjunct professor of comparative literature. A lot of different hats to wear. His research and teaching looks to a number of different sorts of texts, including literature, vernacular music, preaching, and performance, in order to try to suss out ways that religious thought, belief, and practice contribute to and are generated by diverse American cultures, both in the United States and around the world. 
His most recent work explores religious and theological concepts around race, teaching critical religious terms of its development and cultural expression in American, African-American, and global contexts. Professor Harris has written about Ralph Ellison, as well as about Zora Neale Hurston, Nat Turner, Bob Dylan, Kurt Vonnegut, and other leading aspects of American popular culture. We're here today to talk to him about Muhammad Ali. I'm Matthew Cavadon, and I'm your co-host together with... I'm uh, Ira Benzo. And uh, Matt, if you don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this, this first question. Uh, Cooper, I'm really excited to speak to you today. It, it, it seems as if uh, you have um, interests that are wide and deep in many different areas. But since we're talking about your chapter um, titled On the Abroad of a Different Home, Muhammad Ali in the Microscope, uh, I guess my first question to you is going to be, why, why write about Muhammad Ali? Where did your interest come from and how did it come to be that you would write a chapter on such a great fighter? Sure. No, thanks. Um, and thank you also, also for having me. Um, I'm really fascinated by people who don't readily fit into uh, categories. Uh, I think you just read uh, a list of people I've worked on from uh, Bob Dylan to Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Ralph Ellison, Nat Turner. And I see uh, Ali very much in that same vein. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinating with trying to maybe make sense isn't the right word, but to to dive into what it is about this this figure, this person, this persona, um, and and how it is that he um, he functions as as a, a public figure, but also how his um, religiosity and the reception of his religiosity contribute to and and sort of work within. Uh, changing modes of post-war American religion. Um, I often argue that Muhammad Ali is post-war American religion, um, which we can talk more about um, if you like. Yeah, the uh, the project, the Home and Abroad project, um, I was part of the, the working group, and uh, it became clear to me that Home and Abroad as these kinds of terms uh, could be very helpful for thinking about Ali uh, as this person who is uh, working through navigating and negotiating, performing um, a number of, of different contradictions. Um, I was fascinated by um, my colleague Evan Heifley's, uh comment uh, that about the, the abroad of another home, right, where he was trying to move uh, the Great Awakening away from just an American colonial context and to think about it elsewhere. And for me, uh, I, was, I was seized by that statement and, and moving forward with that, I began to think about, so what is it, what is it that Ali moves us away from? Um, what is it that he um, allows us to think about differently or to see differently in this story that we often uh, think or suppose or presume um, that we know, even when we don't? All right, Kubi, you said something that I need to ask you. You said Muhammad Ali is, is post-war American religion. And then you yeah. said, okay, maybe we'll talk about this. I think we need to talk about this. All right, it's the time. What, what do you mean to say Muhammad Ali is post-war American religion? Sure. So Muhammad Ali is, uh, I mean, there are a number of ways we can couch this. I'll kind of give you a, a, a battery of them. Um, I think one is if we want to look at what, how American religion was understood uh, going into the post-war era, how it's often been studied and in, in some ways is still studied. Uh, it's it's you know, obsessed with uh, the, the study itself is, is highly Protestant. 
uh, historically white, historically male. Um, it's, it's fascinated with uh, evangelicals. I mean, there are exceptions here, but even the exceptions, right, uh, thinking about increasing diversity, uh, thinking about, you know, ideas of religious freedom, even these still kind of come out of, of, um, of that, that Protestant sensibility. And so one of the things that I think, uh, or many of the things that I think Ali allows us to, to think about differently is that he doesn't necessarily check those boxes. He's often understood to or thought to or maybe wedged into some of those boxes, uh, but he, he doesn't. He's a, um, a black man. He's a Muslim. He's uh, a Muslim in a way that is both at once sort of aspirationally global and yet also very much embedded in an American context. Uh, he is, his fascinating aspects of his gender, where he's both sort of masculine, but also there's a kind of uh, queerness to the fluidity of it. He's pretty. Uh, he floats like a butterfly and he stings like a bee, right? There are these, these kind of dual um, aspects. He's also right at the heart of, I think, a number of, of, of different um, arguments and ideas uh, that are coming out in questions of law, questions of the body, uh, I've mentioned gender and sexuality, uh, poetics, right? He is very much uh, enmeshed in all of these aspects and in all of these ideas. And he does so in a way that is, I think, appropriately um, pugnaciously defiant of, of the, the, the inherited legacy of American religious history. Um, he is something quite different. And that something quite different is, I would argue, what we ought to be thinking about and paying attention to. You know, your answer speaks to not only how we think about post-American religion, but who gets, to, or post-war American religion, but who gets to tell those stories and who has the authority to, to say what post-war American religion is based on the examples that they see as salient or, or as relevant. Right. Um, in, your, in your chapter, you, you also talk about, you know, how, Ali's life and career are the stories that we we tell about Ali um, in a number of biopics um, focus really on a specific decade of his life. And it made me think of and, and wanting to ask you, forget the broader point of how broad and varied Ali's experiences were such that you could have biopics on any decade, right? But who gets to choose which particular decade speaks to Ali's identity? who's determining what Ali's identity is by virtue of the stories that they're highlighting or focusing on. Um, and, and how does that speak to who gets to tell the story of post-war American religion? Right. No, that's a, that's a good question and a good way of putting it because I think the short answer is that the, the market drives it. Um, sort of just a little bit of background on what we're talking about. Um, uh, this is a, another um, chapter from another book, but I, I look at the way in which 1964 to 1974 is very much the the ground that everybody covers. Most documentaries uh, do that. Uh, the biopic Ali starring Will Smith uh, does that. And there's a compelling story here. In 1964, he wins against all odds the heavyweight championship. Uh, he announces his conversion to Islam the next day. He then uh, as a result of that, you know, uh, refuses military induction. He's uh, goes into exile. He loses his titles. He's broke, but then he's found, uh, I guess, not guilty, or he is affirmed by the the legal structures of 
of the American system uh, on the basis of a sincerely held faith, sincerely held um, religious belief. And he comes back and he wins back the titles that he's lost, that have been stripped from him. So what I argue here is that there's really kind of a classic, uh, classic story form, right? Rise, fall, return. And you can map that on to so much. Uh, and so I, I wonder, I mean, another question to think about is, you know, what other 10-year uh, span, you know, could, could one do? And it's, it's tough. I mean, I think, I think you could do other 10-year spans. Uh, they, they may be less compelling and certainly would not be blockbusters um, without rehearsing sort of the, the different options. Uh, nowhere else really offers the same kind of uh, viability. But uh, I think it's market. Um, it's market. Um, Ali is largely in decline. Uh, he leaves the Nation of Islam when Elijah Muhammad dies uh, in 1974. Elijah Muhammad dies in 75. But uh, things are different. This is the triumph. This is where you go to dark with him standing in the ring, having won the rumble in the jungle. At a very superficial level, it would seem like if you want to bring Ali back into the mainstream of American culture, covering that next religious move away from the nation of Islam and into more mainstream Islam with Warith Din Muhammad would be a smart way to do that. Nevertheless, your chapter says that the popular, at least the popular white memory about Ali freezes him at the end of that triumph, still as a member of the Nation of Islam. What does that say about us? Why is it that that is the religious aspect that is still remembered rather than the later move toward what would seem like a safer, more recognizable sort of Islam? Or am I mischaracterizing that in some way? No, I think you're right. I think it's it's a, it's a good question. You mean ideas of of a mainstream, uh, certainly the esoteric nature of, of the nation of Islam. But what I think is interesting, and, and this is this gets played out, I think, in that compartmentalizing of the story, which is also basically uh, 64 to 74 is more or less uh, the, the length of his time um, in the nation. He might go back a year and, and up a year. But um, so the story of his rise and fall is the story of the nation of Islam. And, and what gets mainstreamed, uh, interestingly, is not um, his involvement or it's not his it's not the specifics of his involvement with the nation. It is the fact that the, um, the nation becomes a kind of uh, smoothed over or vague religion. It becomes the sincerely held belief. It becomes the... Um, the, the thing that he fights for his religious freedom for. So it ceases to be this esoteric uh, black man with spaceships uh, kind of thing. And it becomes what, what he really believes, what he thinks is right, um, what he goes to court for, what he defies all logic for. And so that then gets transferred into something much more recognizable, much more quote unquote American uh, in that it is um, <laughs> kind of, well, it's, it's, it's very Protestant. This is that transformation that takes place. Um, I think with the later terms, there are reasons why that works probably less well also. Um, it's more diffuse. Uh, it's spread out over a number of years. I think the story of that is less compellingly tied to 
a digestible section of Ali's career. Um, I think also whatever one would want to say about um, the a mainstream of Islam, uh, and I'm speaking sort of from a, a, a reception view of America slash white America, the notion of a mainstream Islam is probably not so evident. I mean, this is a period you could look at Iran, which is Shiite, not Sunni, but still, um, that's that's not a difference that most Americans are thinking about. Uh, you can look at Iraq. Uh, you can look at the World Trade Center bombings, both, both of them. Uh, this period in which he is sort of becoming um, what what you might call a, um, or a gesture toward as a mainstream Muslim is a time when that's also decidedly not mainstream. And so if you can look at this highly recognizable American religious freedom uh, version of things, as opposed to this more amorphous aspect, then um, I think that's also a difference. Is one of the real ironies here that the U.S. Supreme Court, the embodiment of the institution, somehow actually rehabilitates the nation of Islam into being a more normalized religious thing for the U.S. white context than other forms of Islam? I mean, when you say it, it makes sense. It's also just absolutely stunning <laughs> in a lot of ways, the idea that the man, if ever there was such a thing, actually facilitates the culture being more comfortable with the nation of Islam, a homegrown, oftentimes radical, militant, resistance-oriented religion, than with a more yeah, universalist or certainly foreign. Mm. And that's a perfectly fair point. But uh, but variety of Islam. I mean, I'm just I'm just absolutely fascinated by your point here. Yeah, no, I think that's but that's Ali, and that's what's uh, really fascinating. If you can break out of the, you know, the the heroic narratives, right? As you begin to see, or if you can begin to recognize those narratives for what they are and how they work, uh, there are just so many ways in which he fractures and tears up any kind of assumptions uh, that we want to make. So irony is a really important word for me. Um, which we can talk more about, but I, but I think you're 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 right on it with that that word and that and that description. Uh, Cooper, you say in your chapter uh, that um, having these biopics, and I know that you also push back and say that we shouldn't have these decade long biopics. You you think sometimes a capture of of a moment or or, or a, a microscope might tell a better story of of Ali as well. But uh, you, you say one of the the, the reasons to end. Um, these biopics where they do is because it, it allows Ali to be seen as a good Muslim by being part of the, the nation of Islam. What do you mean here by a good Muslim? I mean, I know we've, we've spoken about this a little bit in, in, in Matt's question to you, but I mean, given how radical the nation of Islam was and um, how controversial it is, and what is your definition of good Muslim here such that it fits with this description? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I'm there. I'm working with the idea of uh, good religion as something that is recognizable, right? So in the classroom, we'll talk about you know certain things we tend to get deemed good religion, certain things get to be deemed bad religion, and uh, oftentimes that demarcation is based on some way in which you either understand or identify with or recognize uh, something. And so when I say a, a good I don't remember if I say good Muslim or if I say that it's good religion. I, I'm very well may. I'm just I'm, I don't have the the copy in front of me. But what I'm talking about is that idea that the goodness is 
not necessarily the specifics. Well, it's it's not the specifics of you know the myth of Yakub or many of the criticisms that can be leveled at this group. It is the fact that it is about religious freedom. It is the fact that he's standing up for what he believes in. Uh, it is that which makes him good. Um, and I think also if you play that off of a, a sort of ramping up, the ramping up of Islamophobia, uh, certainly after the mid seventies. Um, in the U.S., that is how that plays out. You do give an example of an artistic portrayal of Ali that does zoom into a particular moment. You talk about this play by Will Power, great name, by the way, yeah. um, where Ali learns the anchor punch, a way to summon up all the energies of the entire Black experience, including enslavement and pain and suffering and hopes and survival, and concentrates it into a single blow. And then at the apex of the play, just like in the movies, Right, Ali delivers it onto Liston, knocks him out, and wins. And that's the great triumph moment. Can you talk a little bit about how Black popular memory remembers Ali in light of that and about the significance of that anchor punch moment, perhaps within that discourse or otherwise? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question. And part of the way that I, I would respond to it is that I think when it comes to Ali... I mean, certainly we might make general characterizations, but I, I don't know that there's ever a, a kind of singular categorical um, response. And I think that the, my understanding of the anchor punch here and how power might be using it has something that might help to, to clarify or at least illuminate my point some. Um, he is summoning, as you said, the power of the ancestors, the power of the experience, uh, and he levels it you know, 90 seconds into the match um, against uh, another black man. Um, for uh, Jack Johnson, the anchor punch was almost exclusively sort of summoned um, against a great white hope, and it's an expression of this power. Um, for Ali, it's, it's again, it's this, he's, he's not playing into these kinds of black-white bifurcations. Uh, and, and this is something we see across uh, his career. Um, he's, you know, a figure who's often hailed for his racial authenticity, but this is tricky. He's, it's an unstable um, authenticity. Uh, he could be quite cruel. Uh, you know, leading up to this fight into the pre, this is the second Liston fight that we're looking at, but up to the previous one as well, he's showing up at Liston's door in the middle of the night, calling him a bear, calling him an animal. Uh, highly, highly racially freighted terms. Uh, he says he's ugly. He says he's stupid. Uh, we can go up to Ernie Terrell, the late 60s. Uh, he's you know, calling him Uncle Tom, which is a, a, a racial judgment invaded against someone who called him Clay, but I think also thought that they were doing the, the play around thing. Uh, and and uh, you know, someone like Joe Frazier, where it's just kind of breathtaking, uh, the, the ways in which his, his criticisms were, were um, traded along these racial ways. And so 
I think one of the things that I find fascinating about the anchor punch is the way that it's both that it's both used but also misused. And by misused, I, I put quotes around that because I think this also gets us into another important figure in the play that deals with this same kind of question and this question about sort of particularly about um, black reactions. Uh, and that is uh, his uh, his good friend Step and Fetch It. Uh, Lincoln Perry. And that leads right over to my next question, which is you write in the chapter about the idea of a double cross. Yeah. We talked a little bit about irony already, but talk us through this idea of a double cross as it relates to Ali and to Step and Fetch It or uh, sure. Lincoln. I believe sure. the last name was Perry. Yeah. yeah. So Lincoln Perry, Step and Fetch It. Lincoln Perry is the actor who portrayed Step and Fetch It. Step and Fetch It was. Um, the earliest film star, sort of earliest mainstream black film star, uh, he portrayed uh, a character that was lazy, dishonest, he wanted to take naps, uh, very much a kind of minstrel character. He was a black minstrel in a lot of ways. And as his life went on, this would have been in the 30s primarily, maybe into the 40s. Uh, but by the 60s, the rise of black power and and so point, um, so so forth. Uh, of course, he, he comes under strenuous uh, scrutiny. Uh, people have always not liked him, but he really becomes a, a kind of traitor. I think that's a word that gets uh, used in the play. And so it becomes, and I think this is another example of where Ali sort of defies expectation. Uh, he takes up with um, Perry. He, by all accounts, genuinely liked and was fascinated by the guy. Uh, and so it's, it, it becomes this question of how, you know, how do you account for that? How do you account for this, this sort of beacon for black power? Uh, how can you account for his involvement with someone like, like Lincoln Perry? The, the idea of the double cross is, becomes a way to think about not just the contradictions, not just something like home and abroad or black and white or good or bad, but it becomes a way to think about the ways and how the, how these presumably opposite aspects uh, work together. The, the term itself comes from a, a couple of, I think, appropriate sources. The first one is uh, from boxing. The double cross is a uh, quick second punch um, that's unexpected that isn't necessarily damaging, but it throws your opponent off balance so that then you can come back um, with um, a stronger punch and um, inflict damage. So it is, there's this kind of uh, trickery that's involved with it. It also comes from boxing lore. I think uh, the OED takes it back to the mid 19th century uh, for a boxer who both agreed to take a fall, uh, took the gambler's money, and then also won the fight. So cross and double cross in a way. It also comes from a uh, stage. Uh, the double cross would be you pretend to be someone else who is pretending to be someone else. Um, so there's an extra layer here. And the way that I like to describe that is actually by looking at, looking at a thing, looking at um, Ali's gold medal. He won the gold medal in 1960 fighting for his country at the Rome Olympics. Not long after that, the, the story goes that he um, had a, a, a racist encounter trying to eat in a restaurant in downtown Louisville 
ran to the uh, Ohio River, that you know symbolic dividing line of North and South in the U.S., casts the metal into the river. Uh, he loses, um, so it's gone. He uh, becomes a member of the Nation of Islam, where he refuses to fight for his country. And so if you look at pictures of him in his, his nation uniform, his Fruit of Islam uniform, he's got you know, all kinds of, of, of decorations for the uniform, but the, the metal itself is gone. And then fast forward another 30 years uh, to Atlanta in 1996, when he, you know, there's this moment where he, uh, representing the, the greatest of, a, of American athletes, he lights the torch uh, on the Olympic stage with trembling hand uh, from the Parkinson's. Uh, he's, in a sense, brought back into the fold. They give him actually a replacement medal. So these great pictures of him with the second dream team um, having pictures made. And what I'm interested in in particular is that, that third iteration, because it's not Muhammad Ali with a medal. It's not Muhammad Ali, you know, standing on stage. It's Muhammad Ali who uh, already had a medal, but it's gone. It's Muhammad Ali who is on stage, not because he's a medalist, but because he's a medalist who threw away his medal and then comes back again. That is the double cross. It's not the continuity of one thing across, over, over time. It is this other reversion. And so if he uh, fights for his country, if he becomes a fighter who wouldn't fight, and then uh, comes back to accept, in a way, this medal, this medal means something entirely different than if he had never had it. And so that becomes a model for a lot of my thinking about Ali, is not just he does this, he does that, but how, how are all of these part of a larger whole? How are these, and this is where irony comes in, um, you know, how, how can we think about him ironically in a way that doesn't reduce him to, you know, hero or pariah, you know, jerk or swell guy or uh, any of the other more powerful and better dualities that aren't necessarily coming out of my mouth at the moment. Uh, Cooper, so two things. First, I, um, I want to congratulate you for giving a shout out to the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, it's not often in a podcast that we, we have such a, a, a great reference to a, to a great book. Um, I also now understand, given your answer, um, when you say that Ali doesn't play into bifurcations, uh, the sentence that you write in your chapter, that Ali is never singular, never either or, he's always signifies the both and, a plenitude of meaning, the mask and the mask. Um, but I do have a question on what you mean by the masked and the mask. Yeah. Um, if you can, if you can lead us into your thinking there, that would be, that would be great. Sure. Um, so a couple of things, and this is, this is blending kind of nicely with um, a couple of other things that we have on the table. So uh, quite simply, uh, you know, the wearing of the mask um, changes the, the identity of, not only of the, the masked person, but also it, it gives a different vantage point on the world. Um, but in a way, also this mask itself becomes kind of a Muhammad Ali mask, right? And so the, this would be something like um, the double cross. And I think maybe to make this help us make more sense, we could look at the concept of, of irony, which is uh, in and of itself rooted. And again, we'll get etymological, maybe not the OED, but um, maybe they could sponsor the podcast or something. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, to get etymological, um, irony itself is derived from um, the iron of the Greek stage. 
Um, it is the, uh, it's a mask. It's a, also a mask character. So it's a character who is known for his mask, uh, who is a dissembler. And um, so the idea of irony sort of comes from this. Uh, irony itself can come in any number of guises. It is, well, the great literary critic Wayne Booth uh, really breaks it down nicely in this way where it's, you know, it can be stable, it can be unstable, it can be local, it can be infinite. Uh, but one of the differences between stable and unstable is the idea of stable is that you recognize that it's irony. So if you wear a mask, then I can see that you're wearing a mask and you are not quite what you, you know, are you pretending to be. There is that level of, of change, but I can, can see that. And so I understand and there's this agreement, there's the stability of the irony between us. Unstable irony is where one side doesn't know. And this is where I think it becomes really rich um, for thinking about Ali. And if we want to think about Ali, for instance, you know, wearing a Muhammad Ali mask or something along these lines, or, or having the mask put on him by um, an audience or a crowd. This would be another way of thinking about that, um, of what it is that people need him to be. Um, and so there is this constant kind of back and forth along these, these divisions uh, that, that sort of signify Irony, the mask becomes the place where the, the two perspectives meet and where the, the, the really interesting work, I think, gets done. This goes back to the first question, and I'm, I'm going to ask something really similar that I asked in the beginning, but it, it, it seems like it's going through our, our entire conversation. Um, in the beginning, we talked about how um, how we create or, or, or convey Ali's identity through these biopics is based on the market, like what's entertaining, what's, what's going to sell. Um, now we're talking about irony uh and um whether ali put a mask on himself or or his audience has put a mask on him in your chapter you talk about a number of different conversions or transformations that ali goes through um what does this mean in terms of uh, ali's identity does he have multiple identities over time is there a thread of identity that comes into focus um or as my search for identity uh, futile. Like, would you just argue with me? There is, there is no such thing as identity, only perception. Yeah, or, or maybe the the later extension of that last statement is, how do we know? Um, I mean, the identity is is what. Oh, how how do I? Um, how was I thinking about it? Um, so, what does it mean even to stake a claim about anyone's identity? Yeah. So, so uh, the only coherence really. Uh, to any life is is the meaning that we ascribe to it, either ourselves or that other people ascribe to it. And I think this is why the spans um, become important is is because they are ways of organizing what we understand Ali's identity to be. And he may have had a similar process, and perhaps one could track different personae and 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 think about how that works. But also, and this is a big part of my my research and interest in Ali is I I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't have any way of knowing. And you know, I won't pretend to know. That's, that's where I think the approach um, where I'm looking at is where I, I don't even 
try to think about, you know, his belief or a kind of interiority, really focused on the persona and focused on um, the exterior. That's where I think that can be helpful. I want to ask one more question about an, a specific attribution that gets layered on top of Ali's collective identity, as it were, and that's his, his disability. Yeah. Uh, you describe his disability as representing an uncanny abroad that people write onto his life. Um, I'm a wheelchair user. I'm very, very curious for how that notion helps to explain the role of disability for Ali and for our society. Yeah. No, I think that, so the idea of, of, um, of the uncanny abroad has to do, I think, with, again, with the reception of, um, well, when disability scholars, you know, they often um, note or describe how um, people with disabilities are either cast or understood or treated as you know, possessing special insight from God or uniquely blessed or heroic or this notion of redemptive suffering or something along those lines. and. Um, What's I think fascinating about this is is what Ali becomes, the way that he becomes identified, and much as of his persona, particularly as it's received among whites, but but as much of his persona more broadly, um, it derives from his role as a sort of powerful, mouthy black man who specifically challenges social norms, you know, patriotism, sportsmanship, and he does this because he's beautiful and strong and young and elegant and eloquent, but he's also drawing on, you know, facial expressions. Uh, I think there's a way we could think about his, his interest in, in um, Stephen Fetchett, for instance, as he's on this sort of borderline minstrelsy kind of thing that comes out of the face. And what the Parkinson syndrome does is it attacks those very aspects. Um, it attacks his speech. It attacks his facial aspect. It attacks his physical dexterity. And so in a way he becomes saintly it allows for him to become saintly precisely because he can no longer uh dispel those in the ways that he might have before it's another way of kind of locking him into um, a certain narrative and be that uh, because of guilt or pity or because this is this is how people understand and, and deal with um these situations i think that that plays a highly highly important role in the way that um, Ali becomes, well, in the way he gets his medal back, in the way that he sort of becomes good. He becomes good because he can't be bad anymore, at least according to the ways in which he's often um, read. What does it mean that perhaps his Parkinson's may have been affected by taking blows to the head over the course of a boxing career? Yeah, no, I think it was um, without a doubt uh, caused by that. And yeah, I mean, I think it, it goes into more of these, you know, kinds of double crosses and, and, and you know, the, the brutality of boxing and, you know, the question of what uh, we want and expect from people who are out there. I mean, this, this inflex, interestingly, with religion and religious violence. Um, I mean, there's just so much, so much and uh, that's so rich uh, to think about with, um, with this man. You know, Cooper, I'll, I'll tell you, um both reading your chapter, but as important speaking to you, uh, made me really think about home and abroad somewhat differently, where I think from some of the other chapters, we, we played with the ideas of home and abroad in terms of communities, 
Um, where here, I'm really thinking about home and abroad as the relationship between seeing myself as a, a subject in my own eyes versus being an object in the eyes of somebody else. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it's a really important frame to think about, um, especially when you think about communities as, as a collection of individuals, as, as opposed to simply just an amalgamation of, of individuals. Uh, and I, I really want to thank you for this conversation. It was it was really helpful, um, very enjoyable. And, and I will tell you, it gave me the ability or the desire to want to see movies and the lives of famous people in a deeper in a deeper and different way good well thank you uh, i think it's been a great conversation i appreciate your your questions and i would i would encourage people to find uh fetch clay make man uh, by willpower which is the play that we're talking about and then also another example of this that i wasn't aware of when i wrote the piece but it does something very similar is maybe more famous kemp powers is one night in miami which places malcolm x jim brown um Ali and Sam Cooke in a room the night that Ali wins the title and everything plays out. So uh, other very good examples of this, but thank you very much. Thank you, Cooper Harris, for joining us in this discussion, and thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed our At Home and Abroad series. If you'd like to stay updated on new and upcoming episodes, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. The Interactions podcast is distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University in Campy Forum and produced by Ethan Anthony.